Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello listeners, welcome to episode 8 of Failed Critic. I am Steve Norman, I'm joined as always by James Diamond. Hello. And Owen Hughes. Hello. We believe Jerry McCauley is back from holiday but undergoing an operation, so he'll still be missing for the foreseeable future, but hopefully he'll get well soon. James, how have things been going with the podcast since our release for last week and Prometheus. Um, yeah, uh, I think people quite like the fact that we got the Prometheus one out so as quickly as we did. Uh, so it, that, that's been going well with the downloads. The failedcritics.com website has been receiving visitors and we've we've had off uh, a guest piece already up there this week on Failed Critics from Jason Mitchell, uh, a piece on the rise, fall and the potential rise again of Lindsay Lohan and whether or not talent actually really matters in her career. So it's a, it's a really interesting piece. It's not not gossipy at all. It's uh, taking it definitely from a film point of view. So I really like that piece. So we're looking for anyone who wants to submit work to failedcritics.com. Email us. Uh, you can email me at james at failedcritics.com. Got a brand new spanking email address this week uh, just for that. And obviously still find us, find the blog at failedcritics.com, uh, Facebook at facebook.com slash failedcritic, or our new Twitter account, at failed critics, and and how downloads been looking? Downloads, we're still look, we've still got a kind of regular hundred listeners or so at the moment. Well, hundred downloaders. I don't know if any of you are uh, actually listening to this, but no, it's, uh, it's me. It's it's me on fifteen separate computers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, no, and it's still we're still getting listeners from across the world, which is fantastic. I, I really, I'm, isn't the internet absolutely marvelous that uh, people in Singapore can listen to us knocking around uh, in our various houses talking about films we've seen that week. I think that's brilliant. Hello, world. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Anyway, uh, this week on the podcast, we'll be starting off with the good, the bad and the ugly, reviewing the films we've been watching this week. Then we'll be moving on to Triple Bill, uh, where we'll be talking about our top three directors or actors who have fallen foul of us. And finally, we'll be going on to our new DVD release this week, as there wasn't much out at the cinema worth parting with our hard-earned cash over. So we'll be reviewing J. Edgar, the biopic of J. Edgar Hoover. Um, But we'll be foregoing spoiler alert, as most people probably already know about his life, as it's a biopic and as it's a DVD release, many people have probably already seen it. Um... Yes, yeah, so we'll start off with the good, the bad, and the ugly. Who wants to get us going? 
I'll go. I've got, I've only seen two, so I'll get mine out of the way quickly. Um, uh, the first one, I went to see Men in Black 3 this week, uh, and I saw it in glorious 2D, uh, which was nice. Um, and do you know what? I, I, we talked about Men in Black 3 on the uh, when we did our summer preview. Uh, I can't remember if it was one of our picks, but we definitely... Was it your one of your picks, Steve? Uh, I, I think I know, it was. I think yeah, it was. Yeah, we definitely talked about it anyway. And we said, well, yeah, it could go one of two ways. And I'll, I'll admit, at the time I said, it worries me. Like, the trailer worried me as well. Do you know what? It was actually quite good fun. I, I, I enjoyed it. It was... Um, it, it's the second film I've seen in just a couple of weeks to open on the moon. Uh, no Nazis this time, sadly, uh, which yeah, oh, had to knock point. it down a point already. Um, but... No, it it was, it was. I th- I think it was the film Men in Black Two should have been. To be honest, it wasn't anything too clever. Although I've got to give it a lot of credit because it had a it had very much of a, a time travel plot. There was a its central um its central narrative was based around time travel, people disappearing from time and going back in time and changing the future and stuff like that. And actually, for a film that is aimed at families and and has yeah, I think it was a. I think it was a PG, so yeah, it, you're going to have kids in there. It dealt with those paradoxes pretty well, I thought. It didn't. Um, I, I, halfway through, I went, "Well, that's just ridiculous. How are they going to fill that plot hole?" Uh, and they did uh, by the end of it. Um, it. It reminded me of of a very big budget Doctor Who episode or something like that. You know, it, if you poke too far in. You probably will find some plot holes and things like that, but I I felt it it tied everything up as best as it needed to, considering its audience. Um, will Smith was as charming as ever, you know, doing his grown up Fresh Prince of Bel Air act. Uh, you know, it, it it wasn't any great stretch for him. It wasn't a massive acting job. It, it relied on his natural charm, which you know, luckily he is quite a naturally charming person on screen. There wasn't very much Tommy Lee Jones. Um, I don't know if that is... He's not in it a huge amount. Uh, Those of you who don't know, basically um, an alien played by by Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords, who for half the film, I was going, I really know who this is. He's in a load of makeup. Uh, I was going, I know who this is. I can't place him. I know I recognise the voice. And about halfway through, I realised it was Jermaine Chap doing his David Bowie impression from the uh, the Bowie episode of Flight of the Concords. After that, I couldn't really take him very seriously at all because it was just, Brett, do the funky, funky dance, Brett. It was like that. Um, and so, so after that, I couldn't really take him very seriously. But that was quite a, was quite a specific issue to have with the film, I suppose. Um but yeah, you know, I was watching it. He goes back in time to kill Tommy Lee Jones, uh, character, um, Agent K because he's put him in this moon prison and shot his arm off. So he says, Right, I'll go back in time and stop that happening in the first place. So then Agent J, played by Will Smith, has to go back in time as well and try and stop all that happening and he meets young K, played by Josh Brolin, who is fantastic. Josh Brolin as K. Um, you know, channeling a young Tommy Lee Jones is brilliant. They, there's a couple of jokes where they get over the fact that actually uh, Josh Brolin's meant to be playing a 29-year-old and he's 40-something himself and, you know, make a few jokes about how he, he looks really old for his age and stuff. So they get around that bit quite easily. Um, and, yeah, the, the creatures were fantastic, as they were in 
you know, Men in Black, uh, and Men in Black 2 still, um, I think is Rick Parker, is it? I can't remember the, uh, exactly the name, I feel terrible now. Rick Baker, oh, poor. Um, yeah, Rick Baker, his creature design is fantastic in this. So you, you, it's got a lot of fun. Um, there weren't that many jokes considering um, where it's come from. That, that would be my one real criticism with it, is it isn't hugely funny, but it's it's good fun. Like I say, it's like a, an extended, bigger budget, Doctor Who with Will Smith in the title role. I, 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 Imagine if, if that. Got... Yeah. Will Smith <laughs> is not... Oh, that would be... Uh... <laughs> um, and there was a couple of... When he went back... There was a couple of really nice points. When he went back in time and he went to the agency um, in the 60s, um, all the aliens there look like aliens looked on Star Trek and stuff like that. So that was really nice. It was like all the aliens in the 60s look like aliens from the 60s kind of thing. I thought that was quite a nice little touch as well. Um, uh, Emma Thompson in it, not very, for very long, but she was, she was good in it, to be honest. And it was, it was, it was a good solid seven out of 10. I, I, I was dreading watching it in a way, just in case it was absolutely terrible. But no, I thought it was quite fun. No, no Will Smith rapping this time, though. No, there was just some kind of weird re reboot of a '60s song at the mm. end, probably by I don't know, probably by one of those, um, you know, one of those rappers the kids listen to these days. I don't know. <laughs> what, um, the, what? Um, the dictator that we went to see instead of this? Uh, I believe it, it was. Which, yeah. Which one yeah. would you prefer to have gone to see now? In retrospect. In retrospect. Um, Oh, I, the dictator is a. The dictator had more genuine magic magic to it. There, there was more genuine brilliance to about half the dictator, but the, the other half was poor and wrote. Uh, this was far more um, consistent, and I think it, it would depend on your. I'd rather have gone to see Men in Black with someone. I think I would have had. I would have had more fun if I'd gone and seen Men in Black with someone than I would have the dictator. Because uh, a lot of the laughs I felt I was having at the dictator, it felt like I was the only one laughing at them. Um, yeah, I, I, I honestly, I think Men in Black is a better film. It's better made. It just doesn't ever reach into any levels of genuine quality. It's just a nicely made film. And what else have you been watching? Well, that was in the cinema. And then uh, this week on Netflix, uh, I was... Um, I'm not. Gonna, uh, I was doing a bit of homework on uh, on different directors and stuff, and I came across the Jean Claude Van Damme film Hard Target from 1993. I realised I'd never seen it, and I thought, well, I'd need to do something about that. <laughs> 90 minutes, I'll, I'll have watched that. So basically, it is um, Jean Claude Van Damme uh, at the peak of his powers with a glory, absolutely glorious mullet. It's uh, directed by John Woo. It is the first. American film that John Woo did. And I, I was always under the impression Broken Arrow was his first American film. This had completely slipped out of my radar. Um, and watching it, um, I'll be honest, the first half hour, it is, it is a pretty terrible TV movie, uh, for the first half hour. Uh, the, the plot is some guys, um, played by Lance Henriksen. And a guy who played, I don't know if anyone, either of you watched 24 at any point, but one of the big baddies in, I think it was series four, Habib Marwan, um, he was in this and, uh, as some South African fella, but they basically hunt human hobos, uh, in New Orleans, uh, like safari for rich people. Um, and some girl, her dad 
is one of those homeless guys who gets killed and she goes looking for him and she ends up enlisting the services of Jean-Claude Van Damme to help track him down. He's also a little bit uh, on the edges of society, shall we say. The great thing about this, though, is as it gets going, if you just go, oh, God, I wish this was better, if you stop doing that and go, I'm just going to enjoy it for the ride that it is, I I don't know if if it gets better or if my mind allowed me to enjoy it more. I, I still can't work out whether which of those happened but the great thing is it is one of the best films i've ever seen to play a bit of john woo bingo um so the first half hour it is almost entire it seemed to be almost entirely slow motion in fact i think this film would probably be about 50 minutes long if um the slow motion sections were all played at normal speed there is so much slow motion going on loads of multi-angle stuff um that doves a load of doves get released quite early on as a man walks into a, a, an abandoned warehouse that's fantastic yeah that's then more john Woo, then motorbike chases more john uh, a running and dive with a gun in your hand someone chucking you a gun yeah bingo bingo and about an hour through i was going oh someone's just got to use two handguns at the same time and then they did brilliant there's john Woo bingo for you mm-hmm. um uh, and I forgot how awesome Van Damme's roundhouse kicks to the face are. Uh, he shits all over Chuck Norris, excuse my language, but, you know, Van Damme, his kicks to the face, were they are cinematic joys. Abs- I, I, I just And I, I just started getting into this mindset. Where I was like, I'm just going to enjoy this for the, for the mindless fluff it is. And then at one point, um, a snake comes out of some trees and tries to attack them, and Jean-Claude Van Damme, catches the snake and he just punches a snake in the face uh, you don't see that enough in films you know just take it he's caught a snake he's not gonna like he's, he just punched it uh and then bit the tail off of it <coughs> absolutely mental um and then at the end exactly it's got what snakes on a plane was missing wasn't it exactly they just, there was, <laughs> samuel there was l jackson no... to start punching vipers and things that would exactly been... they just needed to start punching the damn things um and right near the end, it's got Wilfred Brimley, who has been in so many. He's like this great American. You'd probably recognise him. He's got a big, big kind of jolly guy with a full-on white moustache. Um, but because Jean-Claude Van Damme can't do any other accent than French, uh, and this guy has to be one of his relatives, you've got this old US Western actor pretending to be French for no reason apart from... And it's just, it's frankly quite ludicrous, but... The, the, by the time the credits rolled, I, I was happy. I was satisfied. It, it was no more than a six out of ten, but it was an enjoyable six out of ten. So I've not seen anything amazing this week, but I've had a bit of fun with some mindless cinema. Oh, Owen, what have you been watching? I know you said you've watched about seventeen films this week, but if you could, <laughs> if you could just rain yeah. it into about two or three of them, <laughs> I will. Yeah, I'll try and just talk about a couple of them. Um, yeah, I'll start actually with an ugly film I'm seeing this week. It not, doesn't necessarily mean that it's been a bad film, but I, I, I think it's quite easily an ugly film. It's a, a Korean film called I Saw the Devil, uh, which I don't know whether any of you have seen. No. Bas- basically a, a revenge thriller. Um, there's a secret agent and his uh, his wife is pregnant, who's pregnant, is murdered by this serial killer and rapist. So, you know, it's already got that tone of you think, okay, this is already... Yeah. Probably going to just jump straight onto my ugly list, um, <laughs> and and it was really uncomfortable to watch. It was very tense, but not not necessarily because there was tension involved with the plot. Because the plot was very standard. It, it wasn't 
standout point of the, the whole film in general. It was really tense because of how uncomfortable um, the severity of the violence in the film is. It's just really shocking. I, I, you know, I've seen a lot of films and um, uh, some horror films as well, things like, uh, I don't know, uh, Martyrs or um, uh, Itchy the Killer. They are really violent films. Uh, but this trumps them. I think there's, there's a scene in, you know, I won't spoil everything about the film itself, but there's a scene in the car with the serial killer and a taxi driver and somebody else. I won't tell you what happens, but my God, that film, oh, it, it stays with you for a while after you've watched it. <laughs> but I've heard someone describe the film, actually say that they, they thought the film was beautiful. And I can understand what they mean by that, because the way it's shot is, it's really uh, you can't look away. It's you can't deny either that it's really well shot. But it's sort of blood spurting everywhere. There's this guy who's really creepy and yeah, it's hard to hard to explain. But it's 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 beautiful, but only in the same way as you know Frank Ribery is beautiful. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> if he's playing football, yeah, brilliant. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it's very uncomfortable to look at. Uh, you do find yourself squirming or looking through between your, your fingers, you know, hands up to the face kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, no, that's that's probably my ugly film of the week. But it's great. I I really enjoyed watching it. I'm just not sure I'll be able to sit down and watch it again. But, um, yeah, I think the guys, I'm really going to show myself up now, but the director's name is uh, Ji Woon Kim. I think the only other film of his that I've seen, um, well, I haven't seen it, but that I know of is um, a film called The Good, The Bad and The Weird, which is a sort of Korean Western film yeah. on The Good, Bad and The Ugly. But I really want to see that as well, because everyone says that's really funny and it's really uh, entertaining film as well. But um, yeah, that's the only film of his I've seen. But it's, it's not like I don't want to watch any more of his because I can appreciate what he's doing and it's really... Um, gratuitous and all that but it's nice it's it's enjoyable in i think uh, i think at some point we'll have to have a triple bill of great films that you never want to watch again (laughs) (laughs) that sounds like it could be a contender yeah i think so um my other review from last week gone with the wind would probably fit quite nicely onto that yes exactly yeah yeah. all right okay i'm jotting that one down (laughs) (laughs) okay but no i watched that and my bad film of the week is, um, well, I watched Alien, which isn't my bad film of the week. It's one of the best films. I oh, know, I was worried for a second. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> doesn't like Star Wars, doesn't like Alien. <laughs> but it's been talked to, to death on the podcast before and elsewhere on the internet. So my bad film I watched was Alien Resurrection, um, which was written by Joss Whedon, which um, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't actually realise until shortly before I decided to sit down and watch it. But, um, <laughs> Oh yeah, I've seen it before. It was a, I've always thought of it as a bad film, um, and it wasn't as bad as I remembered it being. I remember the first time I watched it, I remember being utterly offended by how terrible the ending to the film is. This time, I thought it was better. I could kind of see what Whedon was doing with the characters, and you know, trying to get the um, interaction between them. And it's kind of like a, a reluctant group of people, but they all look out for each other. And, Everyone's got their own individual characteristics. But it's just really naff. You know what mm. I mean? It's an interesting choice of um, 
characterization with Ripley, changing her from this really strong female character into this sort of half Ripley, half alien clone thing that's, mm. you know, it, fair enough, you know, he's trying something different. It's not just rehashing the same old character again. Alien 3, I think that was one of the main problems with it, is they just put Ripley into an already familiar situation and uh, expected Ripley to be Ripley. This one, like, you know, kudos for trying something different with her. It just lacks any tension. It's got no atmosphere to it. If they're trying to make a horror, it, they utterly failed. If they're trying to make an action film, they utterly failed at that as well. It's just dull, really. I think the aliens aren't... There's nothing scary about them. They're just these slimy rubber things. and They're almost just like the, the raptors from Jurassic Park 3 in space. You know, there's no nothing, nothing good about them. Yeah, um, I... It's a really interesting story, I think, behind Alien Resurrection because the, clearly the people involved are talented. And, and, you know, I've heard, and it could be them making excuses, but I find it quite telling that Joss Whedon said that he was he was brought on to write it without a Ripley to begin with. And mm. then kind of like, then she was inserted in. So he had to kind of move things around there. He has then said that very little of his work is actually left in that script. Uh, but, you know, that could be because it failed. You, you, you can't, it's a bit difficult to work out the, the truth there. What I find very interesting is that um, the director, uh, Junet, had made um, City of Lost Children and Delicatessen and was clearly, you know, flavour of the month, European uh, mm -hmm. director. And they brought him in. He made that and he has refused to work in Hollywood ever since. <laughs> you know, he went on to make Amelie, uh, yeah. went on to make Mick Max and a uh, very long engagement. And the thing is, I love every single one of his films apart from this film. Um, he has refused to go back to Hollywood. He has said that studio involvement uh, produced... He said there was about 20 different people making decisions on certain things. He went over thinking he could make a film the way he'd been able to make films in France. And he said that he would never make a film in America because in France, you've got much more of that, um, that auteur system. So many more people in France write and direct their own work. Um, and I, 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 I love the way that the French kind of just throw money at films and say they don't throw too much money at it, but they, you know, they don't take terrible risks in the way that American studios do, like they did with Cutthroat Island, like they did with Heaven's Gate, like they've done with John Carter. Um, they don't, they don't risk that much money, but they say we're prepared to lose this if it, if it, if it bombs. But go and make the film that you see. Uh, and the fact that he's gone back to France and he's much happier and he's clearly much more productive uh, and makes brilliant films in that system, I think it does say something about what did go wrong with Alien, uh, with Alien Resurrection, because it is a re there's definitely a really interesting story out there, but I'm not sure we'll ever get the full truth. It does, it does come across that way with lots of muddled um, opinions trying to force their way through the film. Because um, Wedden's script... It's not. It's not that it's particularly bad script. It just feels like it's been translated really poorly to the screen. So you know, yeah. I can appreciate. You know, your yeah. There. He he has said he's looked at the film and gone. Well, in his way, he said, "Yeah, I can see that is my script, but that is not what I intended." And it's almost like they've taken his script and then refused to kind of work with him on bringing it to the screen. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he, he's. He's kind of disowned that project. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, well, oppositely to that, my good film for this week is um, classic film 
first time I've ever seen it. It's the Great Dictator, Charlie Chaplin film. Absolutely loved it. There was some. It's a very powerful film. I think that it's most famous for the last five minutes, um, where Chaplin. It, it, I mean, during the course of the film, mm-hmm. Chaplin plays two different characters. It's his first talkie as well. His first full-on talking film. I know that he talks a bit in. Um, no, uh, Gold Rush. But this, yeah. I mean, it's his first full-on talk. But he plays two characters. He plays a Jewish guy in the ghetto, who's barber, and he plays obviously the great dictator uh, himself. Obviously, parodying um, or satirising rather than parodying Hitler, of course. And uh, mm-hmm. it was very, you know, important film at the time. Came out in the nineteen nineteen forty itself, I think. So, you know, very early on in World War Two. And it's basically Chaplin's way of trying to um, bring comedy into politics. And he tries to show that um, by highlighting certain things in, uh, that are wrong in the world at the time and using comedy as a way of bringing people's attention to what was going on. He was a very liberal guy, I think, uh, Charlie Chaplin. Mm. And actually, in the last five minutes of this film, he he's still in character, but he breaks the fourth wall to deliver this straight, serious speech about um, democracy, uh, about the sort of value of uh, humanity and life and what exactly is wrong with dictatorships and, and, and tyranny and that kind of thing. And it is very powerful. I mean, I can only imagine how powerful it must have been in 1940. Um, but, you know, perhaps maybe as well as that, it might not have been as powerful as it is now, now that we know exactly what was going on at the time. Um, and um, so, it, you know, very brave piece of filmmaking as well. It was one of the films where actually he was just on his way out of Hollywood, I think. Was it after this film where he was kicked out or was it very shortly after? It's, it's, he returned? It, yeah, it's very... I think it was just shortly after. I think that yeah. I don't want to talk too much about the film because a lot of people have seen it, and you know, I think you've summed it up brilliantly there. But I do think it is really important we realise that he actually made this before the kind of horrors of the yeah. World War and the Nazi uh, regime were made public, and it was almost like it's it, it, it was a it was filmed as a warning. Uh, and like you say, if you see it afterwards, you think, oh God, wow, that's that's. Yeah, if it had been bought out in '47, say for example, you'd say, yeah. "Well, yeah, they, you know, they're they're trying to teach us a lesson." But no, that it was almost he saw what was coming, uh, exactly. and that's that's pretty incredible, actually. Um, it but it's, uh, it's when, like when you're watching it, and you know, some things are really funny, um, but it's it's just got this this coated to it, which is it's not. You can see he's trying to make it funny, but at the same time, it's a lot of awareness about what's going on, mm. and it's almost you know forcing it through the screen to you, and you yeah. you can't not see the message that he's trying to portray by doing exactly. these. Things. Yeah, and it's weird because we'll never have that. Um, we'll never have that experience the way that most Americans who would have seen it at the time, who would have actually probably been pretty much unaware of what was going on in Europe anyway. Right. Uh, especially if they're kind of, you know, similar to the Americans that we have these days, especially, you know, apart from the more liberal areas, they would have had complete ignorance of what was going on in Nazi Germany. Um, yeah. And so, and I, I'm, I'm in a way, I'm jealous I could never have that experience, but no, it's such a powerful film. It is. But, you know, I, as well as that, I do want to talk a little bit about, it is a funny film. I think yes. it has yeah. these things, but it still stands the test of time. 
it's got um, some scenes in it which um, are quite funny, but also at the same time you, you kind of squirm a little bit watching them because there's, there's things like where him and um, Schultz, who's the sort of exiled um, German soldier, and a Jewish family, and they're all living in the ghetto, and someone knocks on the door who's just a family member, but they don't know, and they all try and fit into a little chest to try and hide. You know, it's funny, but mm. it's still at the same time, mm. it's quite difficult to watch. But um, as well as that, you know, there's bits where he's swallowing coins out of a pudding, so he's not picked to go on the suicide mission. Again, <laughs> it's funny. It's technically funny. You can't, yeah. you know, you do laugh at it, but it's still got that reality to it. It's quite, still very raw, yeah. Yeah, yeah before, exactly. But as well, I think one of one of the sort of flaws with it, is the way that it's, because it's one of his first talkies, there are a lot of bits of humour that don't quite work because he's still working on the basis of mm. older silent films. So there's things like he's juggling around with a grenade. You know, he falls down his sleeve, falls into his trousers, and he's trying to get this grenade out before it explodes and stuff. But, but there's no kind of background music, nobody's talking, there's no mm. sound effects, there's nothing. So it, you're just looking at and it's kind of dated a little bit. More mm. so than, say... Um, modern times, which I really like, one of his earlier films. But it's still got the same kind of slapstick humour to it. But I find that funnier. I don't. I think that must be do with the way that it's shot. It seems less dated in a film from the 1920s than it does in his film from the 1940s. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I don't know about that. And also the dialogue in it is still fairly witty, but he's still getting. I think it's still him getting to grips with having talking characters in it. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. got, a, it's, not, it's not got the same punch as, say, Mark's Brothers film has. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I think, that's a fair, I think that's a fair point, to be fair. Yeah. So, you know, that was my good film. It was the first time I've seen it, and I, um, I really enjoyed it. Well, I've only managed to watch one film this week in between recording podcasts for Born Offside and this podcast and writing for various people about football. But I managed to watch Chronicle on Blu-ray. Okay. I've, I've been looking forward to hearing about this because last time you watched a found footage film, you were disgusted. So. This, this... Yeah, I wasn't around for that. I, I would have stuck up for Alien. Uh, not Alien. What Apollo, Apollo 18. 18. Yeah, I would have stuck up for that. But anyway. Uh, Chronicle is brilliant. Okay. Uh, Excellent. <laughs> essentially, it tells a story of a sort of teenager called Andrew, whose mum is extremely ill and his dad is a violent drunk. He's not popular at school. Um, he hasn't really got any friends. Um, you know, he's, he's a lonely lad. And he, for some reason, there's not really explained. He just decides to start filming everything he does, which is convenient or else this film wouldn't have happened. Um, <laughs> but his cousin, who is, is quite popular... Um, well, just a normal guy, really, not really overly popular, but decides to sort of try and, you know, be his cousin's only friend and take him out to the party. They go to some party one night, um, and him, his cousin, and the sort of, well, what do they have in, they have like class presidents in American high school, don't they? Yeah, oh, yeah. But the yeah. Lad, lad who, who's going to become that, um, end up finding something that gives the three guys superpowers. Um, and if if you were talking about you know a, a typical superhero film, it'd be the origin story. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's just really interesting, completely different take on it. Um, it's sort of really interesting to see how the three characters progress once they get powers. 
they start off just sort of using it to play pranks and jokes and have a laugh and, and mess about and, you know, play tricks on members of the public and things like that. But because Andrew is such a, a complicated person with, you know, a violent dad and ill mother and, and you know, depressed and a, and a little bit mental, um, he, you know, he start, he start, he starts to sort of use his powers in a bad way. They sort of come up with some rules. Uh, you know, you can't use the powers on other people and, and things like that to sort of, you know, make sure things don't happen. And there's one time when they're driving back from somewhere together and there's a car behind them right up, you know, behind them, driving aggressively, beeping his horn. And Andrew, with his powers, flings the car off the road and more, almost kills the guy driving. And it sort of sets off on a downward spiral for him. Um, yeah, I think I'd seen that bit in the trailer, actually. It, it sounds really interesting. It's one that I do want to see. I just need to kind of get round to seeing it. It is fantastic. It does set up for a sequel, and apparently there is going to be a sequel made, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing when, you know, sometimes when you see them leave an ambiguous ending, you sort of you, mm. you think, why? Just, you know, <laughs> don't bother making a sequel. It'd be fine how it is. But I mean, you know, as a, as a superhero film, which is essentially what it is, it's a very different take on it, and it's very entertaining. Um, How did the found footage angle work for you? Because yeah, I've got I a little ask. bit tired of that. It, it, it didn't really work. Okay, it didn't really feel like a found footage film. Mm. If you know what I mean. I mean, obviously, you knew that they were they were holding the the cam. You know, it was yeah. it was a handheld cam. Well, the, it, the quality was that good. It didn't look like a handheld camera. Yeah, and you couldn't it. Other than it sort of being, you know, a plot device at the start of the film, it didn't really, it wasn't something that you sort of noticed throughout the film. It wasn't something that you picked up on. Yeah. It was, you know, it wasn't something like Apollo 18. I'm trying to think of another one now that I've watched recently. Um, but. Paranormal activity? Yeah, it wasn't, it, it wasn't kind of like that. It didn't keep going back to the camera and messing about with the camera. It was. You know, it was pretty so much just... It could have been shot without the found footage thing. Would it still have worked without the found footage, do you it, think? Just it, yeah. It's... Done as a straight film. Yeah, it would have worked just as well and probably been just yeah. as interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, just that's... One, one film that I think has really um, used this found footage thing quite well. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a fan of paranormal activity films anyway. But I think District 9 used it interspersed with this documentary style. Mm. And an action film as well. I think that was one film that I've, I've seen that I thought, actually, they really seen a, a way to use that properly and make it look entertaining at the same time. That's, that's a really good point, actually. No, no, District 9 does use that really well. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, and also, <laughs> that's a film that is in desperate need of a sequel. Yes. Yeah, what? 2009, the aliens were supposed to return three years later. Here we are in 2012 and no sign of a sequel. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah, I think Chronicles is a solid 8 out of 10, definitely worth a watch. I watched the, on the DVD, you get a choice of the theatrical version and the extended version. I watched the extended version, so I've no idea what difference it is to the, the theatrical version. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's definitely worth watching. Excellent, I will do. Um, so yeah, we'll be on to the good, no, Triple Bill in part 2, uh, where we talk about uh, actors and directors that we have fallen out of love with.
Welcome back to part two and triple bill. Like I said before, it is our top three directors or actors who have fallen foul of us or we've fallen out of love with. I'm going to kick things off as I end the last part. Number one, George Lucas. Obvious, <laughs> obvious reasons. Yeah, I can, I can understand that. Yeah. Obvious reasons. <laughs> he makes the one of the greatest trilogies of all time. One of the most exciting trilogies of all time. One of the best, you know, the best three films I've seen as a child, as an adult that I can watch repetitively. Um, ad nauseum, yeah, really. Jones, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I'm talking about Star Wars. I mean, A New Hope. James is probably old enough to remember it when it came out in 1977. <laughs> I was minus two at the time, but not far off. I saw it on TV in about 85. I, I remember when it came out, the re-release in 1999. And I'm just going to really read two things that will exemplify what he has done wrong. Imagine you're James sat in the cinema in 1977, or me in 1999, a child, and this comes up on the screen. In a galaxy far, far away, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, big yellow writing, the title comes up, A New Hope, it is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil galactic empire. During the battle, rebel spies... Managed to steal secret plans to the Empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star, an armoured space station with enough power to destroy an entire planet. Pursued by the Empire's sinister agents, Princess Leia races home aboard her starship, custodian to stolen plans that can save her people and restore freedom to the galaxy. Now, how exciting does that sound? I'm with you. And that hadn't really been done for years since the old, like, 1930s Flash Gordon series and stuff like that. that No one had dared start a film in that way. But that just just sounds exciting. Re- yeah. You know, you think. I know where you're going you, with this, you know, You think, you think rebels. <laughs> you think Death Star. You think blow up a whole planet. You think princess. You think stolen plans. Excellent. And then imagine you're sat in the cinema thinking he's made three more. He's making three more films. That's brilliant. He's talking. He's gonna go back to the start of the story. You're too young to really re- read film reviews online. You don't really care that much. You just want to watch more Star Wars. And then this comes up. Episode one: The Phantom Menace. Turmoil has engulfed the Galactic Republic. The taxation of trade routes to outlying star <laughs> systems is in dispute. Hoping to resolve the matter with a blockade of deadly battleships, the greedy Trade Federation stopped all shipping to the small planet of Naboo. While the Congress of the Republic endlessly debates the alarming... Cha- oh, Jesus Christ! Like George, George, it's gone, George, it's gone wrong! Where's the charm gone? Where's the excitement gone? Where's the bloody space... Battling Jedi <laughs> swords, people got you've ruined it, and you've talked about it's a essentially it's, it is a bloody child film. In the opening five minutes, you're talking about tax, trade routes, and Congress. I mean, <laughs> stop it, please. It's his film. I don't mind him going back and putting CGI eyelids on bloody Ewoks. I don't really care about that. The films still look good. It's his film, he can do that. But don't change the complete tone of it. I mean... Oh, oh Steve. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't think I need to really go any further. I think the two opening crawls from the start of each trilogy just proves the point. I mean... Uh, no, I think I think you're right. Um, it, it also quite interesting, obviously, the original trilogy, the only one he actually directed is um, 
a new hope and he didn't direct you know he, he was the guiding hand for empire and jedi uh but when he got back when he directed you realize actually his direction isn't great <laughs> at all no. uh, you know he he is a universe creator uh, and that's what I, you know, that's what I love about I love the universe of the original Star Wars film. He's a universe creator, but then he goes. I I still don't know what because, like you say, he brought in Jar Jar Binks and like said, "Look, this is a kids' film," and you know, and I I would accept that. Like you say, if he hadn't started off talking about Congress and trade routes and taxation and stuff like that, because that is that's not that's not for that's not for a kids' film. It's really no, really just, not. Just go. Oh, there's a there's a planet in trouble. There's some bad guys trying to stop them getting all the stuff they need, and the good guys are Jedi's, <laughs> and they're pretty cool, and they're gonna save the day. Watch this. That would have been uh, better. That that word for word yeah. in big yellow <laughs> across the screen. I would have been all over that. It's much more exciting than tax and trade routes. Oh, just so yeah, George Lucas. You've you've basically got to give somebody else a green light to do a sequel trilogy and make it amazing. <laughs> for me to get any kind of respect for you anymore because I just lost it all. Okay. <laughs> I think we'll leave Steve alone with his yeah. stuff. So. <laughs> Next, Keanu Reeves. Uh, crossover. First, oh, wow. First, <laughs> first three yeah. films you I can... You loved Keanu Reeves at one point. <laughs> first three films I can probably remember Keanu Reeves in. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures. One of my favourite childhood films, like I've discussed before. I'm not going to repeat anything about it. I've discussed it at least once before on here. Speed, great action film. Mm-hmm. I've yeah, said many times before, they can't make good action films anymore. At least Hollywood can't. They seem to have done it in the with The Raid, but I didn't see it. But, you know, Speed, exciting action film. And The Matrix, if they didn't make the second, mm-hmm. two, second ma- and third Matrix films, The Matrix would rightly be one of the best films of all time. Um... Visually, so visually I, I just refuse to accept the existence of the other two. Visually, so visually, <laughs> visually plot-wise, and everything else, yeah, you know, one of the one of the best films ever. And then it's very what, dated, though, The Matrix. Hmm. I mean, I, I haven't. It now, but it's but, um, very much a nineties film in the but, way it looks, anyway. But I mean, but since then, he's just a terrible actor. hasn't made a good film. And just look. Oh, another film I liked him in The Replacements, American football film. Other than that, I can't think of anything else he's done that was good. Everything I see him in just disappoints me. And in yeah. and in the mate, what was the um, what was the the sci-fi remake he did? I can't remember. It's yeah. um, Day the Earth. Stood That's still. it. Day the Earth stood still. He plays Clatow, who's an alien kind of thing that's meant to have no emotions, and he even does that badly. <laughs> so yeah, him. I, I, do you know what I can't? Argue. He's also uh, in really early on in his career. He's in Parenthood, and he's brilliant in that as well. But no, you're right. Ever since The Matrix, um, I have got I have got a Scanner Darkly to watch. I've still not seen that. I'm planning to watch all the um, Philip K. Dick uh, adaptations, and I've got a Scanner Darkly on DVD at home to watch. I've not seen that yet. So as things stand, I completely agree with you there, Steve. Have you yeah. ever seen um, that Dracula film that he was in? And he plays Jonathan Harker. Oh, God. Um, Coppola's... Ed Dracula. Yeah. Yeah, an English um, solicitor. And he's yeah. just on the verge of saying dude or man at the yeah. end of every sentence. It is awful. And I mean, it's the ugh. same in um, Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing as well. You, he's <laughs> kind of wandering around now and you just... It, yeah, I, you did name three brilliant films uh, there, Steve. And I'm thinking, 
is he, is he just really lucky that he ended up in good films? Uh, but I think he's good in those. I, yeah, he's he, com- has, he's complete, he has been good in films. He's not wooden he's in those films, and he seems to be wooden no. every time I see him now. He's not the best thing in those films, I don't think, usually, but he's certainly not terrible. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what's happened to him. He started doing romantic things mm. with Sandra Bullock and stuff like I have, that. I have heard, heard rumours that there's a script knocking about for a Bill and Ted free, and hopefully he can redeem himself with that. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. And and my yeah. third my third one is is just a warning, Simon <laughs> Simon Pegg, please only do work with Nick Frost and Edgar Wright because everything else you've done is absolute gubbins, um, especially yeah I don't like your role in Mission Impossible it's rubbish um I didn't like Run Fat Boy Run How to Lose Friends and Alienate People no just do work with Edgar Wright. Uh, Nick Frost, and actually, you can stick to doing a Star Trek film. So I didn't mind that one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, kind of but yeah, just 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 <laughs> you know, be really picky. Just work with the tried and tested formula because everything else. Paul was all right. Yeah, just but that was Nick Frost as well. So yeah, um, Simon Pegg, just watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I I did um, on Friday. I couldn't find the time. I nearly went to see a Fantastic Fear of Everything, which is. Which would have been my third film for the start, of the um, and yeah, has got Simon Pegg and is directed by Crispian Mills, the former lead singer of Cooler Shaker and uh, son of the actress Haley Mills. In, it's his first feature film. I'm glad I didn't know because oh, a the trailer didn't look great, and b the reviews have been very scathing. I've I've seen a lot of one star reviews about for that film already, so that just taps into what you've just been saying there. So he clearly didn't listen to you, Steve. He's gone and produced he, another film. He needs to make a third series of Space as well. Yes. Um, anyway, as we've had some crossover, Owen, why don't you start off? Probably best to start with why you hate Keanu Reeves now. Yeah, no, it's the same reasons. I mean, everything I think has been said about him there, hasn't it? Is there anything left for me to say? I mean, I'm still waiting for him to, to to put in a good performance in anything. I mean, he was good in Bill and Ted as uh, as Bill. It wasn't a no, challenging Ted role, really, Bill. though. But it wasn't. No, it was just. It just seemed like it was him being. It was just Keanu being Keanu, wasn't it? A little bit. But yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't really like him much in Matrix. I thought he'd speed. Yeah, it was okay. Um, but you know, his name's just turn off for any film that's attached to you know, that's what I feel like but, um, yeah yeah anyway yeah I think we've said enough about Keanu I'll move straight on to my next one I think which is uh Tim Burton <laughs> <laughs> near crossover near crossover yeah, but crossover. no I didn't quite put him on I didn't quite put him on well I could probably assume where you're going so I'll try and avoid going in that direction but uh yeah Tim Tim Burton Batman Batman Returns Great films, I think. They, they still, yeah. I mean, you know, there were flaws to them, but they've still stood up to the test of time as well. Beetlejuice was okay. Sleeping Hollow was okay. I genuinely love Beetlejuice. Oh, Beetlejuice is one of my, my favourite 90s films. I think it's yeah. genuinely brilliant. Uh, I think Mars it's... Attacks as well. Mars Attacks is great fun. Yeah. Oh, 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 you'd, <laughs> he'd started losing it before then for you. Yeah. Okay, you know, but, but the problem is he, he's, a, he's ruined Planet of the Apes. He tried to ruin Planet of the Apes. Yeah. You know, yeah. they said that if that film was successful, they would do more, and they would be, like, um, you know, restart the uh, yeah. franchise. It was successful, but the studio still said, no, you can't carry on doing that. Which I think, yeah. you know, 
fantastic. It meant that we had to wait a few years, sure, but we ended up with the, the quite brilliant Rise of the Planet. Far yeah. better film. Yeah, far, far better yeah. film. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. What was um, the ending all about on his Planet of the Apes as well? I don't know. <laughs> it's just nonsensical. Yeah, I'm not going to go on about that. I do love yeah. the original by Planet of the Apes. I love the comics, the, the original book by Pierre Boulle, the, the French novel. I'm just going to stop before I end up in a Steve like rant about George. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, after that, you know, he just seemed to develop one style of filmmaking. It has two people who feature in every single one of his films. Um, and I don't like them, basically. I think, you know, Johnny Depp, decent actor. Helena Bonham Carter can be a decent actress. Why just use them in the same, mm. you know, situation, same characters, do yeah. everything he's doing, all set in the same terribly awful gothic gothic mm. um, theme, and it, it doesn't work for me. I, I hate the musicals. He does. I hate musicals anyway. If we go and see Rock of Ages next week, I'm going to be so scathing of that. I can already tell. <laughs> But I, th- I think that's the plan, isn't it? Open, open <laughs> mind. Open mind. Um, yeah, we'll see. But he... Uh, I, I just... um, Yeah, you know, I could watch Batman, Batman Returns yeah. again easily. Beetlejuice, okay, if it's on TV. Sleeping Hollow, yeah, sure, whatever. Edward Scissorhands, I wasn't really a fan of that. Everything else, I just don't like him. I think it's the main yeah. thing. Well, no, I think it's a fair point. Um, And yeah, I can't think of a... I can't think of a film of his I've enjoyed since Sleepy Hollow, which I thought was okay. But yeah, uh, it was Planet of the Apes where he he completely lost me. uh, And I've never... But he didn't quite make it onto my list. Uh, And neither did Johnny Depp quite make it onto my list because I've still got a bit of hope for him. But yeah, no, both of those two, very, very close to making it on. You know, the Planet of the Apes thing, I think what works in Planet of the Apes is the makeup. And I think partly, you know, okay... Maybe he could he can have credit for that because he's known for his sort of um, yeah. you know, very specific designs and stuff. The rest of the film it just doesn't nothing in it works. It's really uh, yeah. I'm, I'm no, I'm going to stop before I carry on and I'm never sure. <laughs> okay, but um, moving on to my next choice is um, maybe a little unfair to say that I I hate him or I've fallen out with love, love with him. John Landis. Mm. You know, American Werewolf in London, fantastic, one of my favourite yeah. films, I absolutely love it. The Thriller video, and what was the mm. other one he, um, from Michael Jackson, the uh, Black and White, was it, that he did as well? I can't remember now, I didn't realise, yeah. I knew he'd done Thriller, I didn't I didn't know he'd done any others, ah. Yeah, he did another one. You know, he's a great director, he, he, or he can be a great director. Um, but the more of his films that I see, or, you know, when I, I after I'd watched American Wealth in London, the more of his films I'd realised I'd seen, the less I kind of liked him and wanted to see any more of his work. Three Amigos, that comedy with, um, is it, is, is it um, Steve? Steve Martin, Martin Short and Chevy Chase, yes. Yeah. You know, I saw that when I was younger. I didn't really like it. National Lampoon's Animal House is another one of his. Never really really did anything for me either. The um, Eddie Murphy vehicles that he did, you know, trading places, coming yeah. to America. Yeah, whatever. Not really interested in those either. Great nostalgic films, I guess, for anything. I mean, Blues Brothers is the only film of his that I haven't seen that I'd quite like to go and see. 
Um, Blues Brothers 2000 kind of puts me off a little bit there because I don't think I've seen anyone say anything positive about that. But, no. Uh, <laughs> but Blues, Blues, Blues Brothers I haven't seen, so you know maybe I'm being a, a bit too critical on John Landis. And I know there was the whole sort of controversy, controversy about um, the people who died on set through the, um, the helicopter accident. Yeah. Twilight Zone. I think, you know, massive credit to him and respect to be able to continue a career after that anyway and to keep making um, commercially successful films you know you've got to give him his due but I haven't seen any of those films after that incident where I you know I've enjoyed them that much even now you know I know Steve mentioned Simon Pegg with Burke and Hare he was attached to I quite like Pegg I quite like um, Andy Serkis That film, I've read about the history of it on Wikipedia before, the story to it, and then when I saw they were making a film, I got quite excited about it. I thought it was quite interesting. Then I saw he was attached to it, and I thought, oh, okay, fair enough, but maybe it's not for me then. Um, yeah, what's your opinion on him then, James? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm actually more... I, I, I think it's a really good shout here. I didn't even think of John Lance, because I do quite like some of the early films. I'm just having a look now. So, yeah, you've got Animal House... And I've seen the Blues Brothers numerous times. I, I love the Blues Brothers. I think it's a great film. Then American Werewolf in London. I really like Trading Places. Um, and, you know, Three Amigos, I still really enjoy. Coming to America, I enjoy in a kind of nostalgic sense. I don't think it is that great a film. Um, but then, you know, you are getting onto things like Beverly Hills Cop 3, um, Blues Brothers 2000, and like you say, and then Burke and Hare, which I have seen and isn't great. Um yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a really good shout actually. Although I, for almost I can tell for you, it's like I really loved one of his films, and why couldn't he have made any? That's film pretty as much good it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, American Werewolf in London is just one of those films that I could watch, you know, every week almost if if I had to. It's fantastic. I love it. Everything from the makeup to the characters, the story, the little references like they go to the slaughtered lamb in. You know, and yeah. stuff like that. These little things that he's put in there—it's brilliant. I love it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, like I say, maybe a bit harsh to say it's someone I've fallen out of love with because I was only in love with him for a very short amount of time. Um, yeah, but it, it was know, a weekend. Yeah, like, someone, so, so, yeah, someone had to make the uh, someone had to make the list of three. Fair enough. Oh no, I think it's <laughs> I think it's a worthwhile choice. So what, what have you chosen then? Sorry, Steve, just stepping <laughs> on you over there. <laughs> Two-day time, are we? <laughs> I'm, I may as well have gone and, gone and picked up that from work. <laughs> just left you to it. Yeah. So, James, <laughs> tell me. What... <laughs> uh, sorry, um, yeah, I'll start. Yeah, I will go through my three, though. Owen's making a move on uh, leadership here. I'm, I'm interested in seeing how that pans out. But um, I'm going to start off. My first choice, um, my number three, if I'm doing it in reverse order, is the only actor on my list. Um, now, he made some early appearances in films like Sixteen Candles and Stand By Me as well. But his breakthrough was in Cameron Crowe's Say Anything. Cameron Crowe, another contender for my list, actually, who I don't think has made anything decent since... Uh, uh, almost famous, but <clears throat> um, I'm talking about John Cusack. Now, I'm not saying he is a, the greatest actor in the world, but I think he is a very decent actor. But he had a lot of charm, uh, and he had a, he definitely had a screen presence. And there was a run that went City Hall, Gross Point Blank, Con Air, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, The Thin Red Line, Ca- Cradle Will Rock, Being John Malkovich, and High Fidelity. 
Oh, that's a really solid list of films where he puts in, you know, at, at worst, a charming central performance. And in some of that, uh, being John Malkovich, he's absolutely fantastic in. Then I think it got to the stage where he became a bit of a leading man. Um and he got some roles in some pretty substandard rom-coms, uh, things like America's Sweethearts, uh, Serendipity, Must Love Dogs. Uh, then he made a couple of generic, really uninteresting thrillers like Identity and Runaway Jury. And since then, he's actually been really busy, but I've barely seen one of those films. They all look shocking on IMDb, all with scores hovering around the five mark. Um he did do Hot Tub Time Machine, which I've still not got around to seeing. I don't think it looks fantastic. A few people have told me it's quite funny. Um, and he was most recently on cinemas over here in The Raven, the the Edgar Allan Poe uh, story, oh, yeah. which looks a bit interesting. But it, uh, you know, I heard an interview with it. He sounded so bitter and cynical about even being a Hollywood actor. And it, it really, because I always thought when I, you know, in the 90s, I was just leaving school, going to college, watching him in these films like Gross Point Blank. I thought, he must be awesome. He's funny. He's charming. Turns out he sounds a bit of a knob on the <laughs> when I hear him in interviews, to be honest. Sounds very self-important, considering I was that say, yeah. I still, I he's had 10 years without a hit. <laughs> yeah, he's, um, he comes across as a little bit arrogant, doesn't he? Yeah, and which really does annoy me, because, yeah, like I say, in the 90s, he showed decent range. He had an everyman charm. And in a way... Um, I honestly, he did remind me of a kind of modern Cary Grant in the in the sense that you could believe women falling in love with him, you could believe him being drunk in a bar, you could believe him just being a normal bloke, but that kind of that better version of a normal bloke that I wish I could be, and that he always says the right thing at the right time and things like that. You know, he's not a superhero, he's not an action star, but he's just. Yeah, that was the character he played a lot of, and whether it was just the fact that he just chose the right projects for a bit of time, I don't know, but. Uh, it, he seems to have just disappeared recently, and it's really sad. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest, I can't see things getting much better for him now. I remember in the nineties, I always thought he looked, he had, a, he had the look of a young Joe Strummer, and I always thought he would have been absolutely perfect for a Clash biopic. And there yeah. still hasn't been a Clash biopic, so I'm, I'm tempted to go down. I might just have to write it myself. And the amount of films yeah. he does, he'll probably do it for me. To be honest, <laughs> was, he, was he not in a Joe Strummer related film? He may, I think he was in a Joe Strummer, but he didn't play Joe Strummer, which I always thought was a waste because he he really does look like Joe Strummer. Uh, yeah, yeah. The future is unwritten. It's, I've got it up here. Ah, okay. So he was in, interviewed on it. I think he was into. Oh, cause, oh, that's the other thing. He is a massive fan of the Clash as well. Yeah. And it, it seemed like why did those planets never align? Because um, I know in Gross Point Blank, he he definitely got a couple of Clash songs on the soundtrack, like off his own back. Um, and yeah, he's a Clash fan. He looks like Joe Strummer. Why did we never make that film? That, that's annoying. Uh, but yeah, that's that's my my first choice. Um, good, good choice, I think. But you, you know, you. your point about him being a, an everyman. Yeah. When he he, I can remember him most. I think from um, Stand by Me. Yeah. He played the. He was only on the screen very short amount of time, but I think he played the older brother, the main yeah. character, and he was the hero. He was the the guy who died too young and you know yes, yeah yeah so you know i think that's part, partly where his reputation comes from is that he's not that it's specifically from that film but that's the kind no. of person he's seen as isn't it yeah so he, yeah so i think he still kept getting parts in film because i don't think he's a particularly great actor either 
No, no, he's got a decent rate. He can do a decent job for you. Um, but yeah. it really does. Re- he's never going to lift a fit. He's never going to, in the way that you su- see some great actors in poor films and go, well, it was worth it for them kind of thing. You're yeah. never going to get that with him. Um, I yeah. think he, he is a glue in a good film. He can make that good film. Yeah. He can, he's got that heartwarming charm, I think, or he did. I don't think he's got it anymore, which is probably why he's not in many great films. <laughs> so, um, my second choice, and I, it pains me to say this as well, um, the sixth Python, uh, the only American on the Monty Python team, unique animator, brilliant visual style, Terry Gilliam. Um, just look at this run of films, and I know, Owen, there's a, there is a Python film in here. but um, That's okay. I yeah. mean, I'm not a... a, a, a I know, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm only... <laughs> that, he, he co-directed Holy Grail. Uh, then we go Jabberwocky. Time Bandits, Brazil, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, The Fisher King, Twelve Monkeys, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Okay. All of those films, they may not, a couple of them aren't, they aren't really hugely successful even as a film, but they're so ambitious. Adventures of Baron Munchausen is so ambitious. I don't care that it fails on a number of levels. You can see what he was trying to do, and I admire that. Um, But then after Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, we get The Brothers Grimm, Tideland and the Imaginarium of Dr. Uh, Parnassus. I, I really cannot get into any of those films. And I've tried because I really like Terry Gilliam. But I think all of those films are just... Bleh. And I don't, and he's probably... Re- I do think he's one of the unluckiest filmmakers that there are. For someone who has made a fortune making films, you know, he's lucky in that sense. But in his industry, he's very unlucky because obviously Heath Ledger died during uh, the filming of Imaginarium. And so he had to go back and kind of that's why he recast um, Heath Ledger's character of, I think it's Tony, um, with Johnny Depp and Jude Law uh, and you know various different people in the different uh, universes. But I, interesting what I find really interesting the last good film that he was involved in in my mind is uh, I don't know if either of you have seen it the documentary Lost in La Mancha and it's a documentary about his absolutely cursed production he was trying to film The Man Who Killed Don Quixote Um, and this film is heartbreaking because it is about a man who has got a film that he's been trying to film for 15 years and he's getting all excited and these guys started off filming it like ultimately to be the behind-the-scenes documentary for when it eventually got released. Um, and then as things get bad, the main, uh, the French main actor uh, has struggled ride, struggles riding a horse and then injures his back, so he can't definitely can't ride a horse anymore. Um, they get storms, freak storms, which wash away entire sets. Um, then there's studio influence and studio problems. And in the end, the whole, the whole film collapses. And that's how the documentary ends, is the fact that Terry Gilliam's going... Well, that's that then. We can't make that film anymore. <laughs> it's really, really heartbreaking. But I can't help but say, Terry, I loved you. I still love you. I know you can change, but we need to see other people for that. Yeah, I, I kind of... I mean, Brazil is a pretty good film. There, there are a lot of things I love about Brazil. Even though in Las Vegas, I, you know, I, I don't know what I think about that still. <laughs> it's been so long since I've... I'm still undecided whether I enjoyed it or not. Um, it's just a weird film, I think. Um, yeah. But no, I can see I can see why you picked him because he, he definitely has a turning point, doesn't he? A very yeah. clear 
critically and, accepted and turning point. And I think a lot of these choices that all of us have had have had that very clear turning point, actually. And you can yeah. almost, it, it is like a couple. It is, that's the argument that we had that, you know, <laughs> that broke the camel's back kind of thing. Um, and I've got the same again on my, my number one choice. Um, this, now this, another director had a name check a couple of weeks ago. And he is probably, he's my first cinematic crush in the sense that he was the first person that made me realize that this is what a director can do. This is the difference a director can make to a film. Um, that they can be, and that action films can be beautifully shot and directed. It's John Woo. John, what, where have you gone? Um, okay, again, I'm just going to read off the run of films that he made. Uh, and again, not only are these are masterpieces, but they, they do something interesting. They're enjoyable. Um, and that, you know, they're, they're movies. Uh, a Better Tomorrow, A Better Tomorrow 2, The Killer, one of my favourite films ever, Just Heroes, Bullet in the Head, probably the best Vietnam film I've ever seen. Uh, Once a Thief, Hard Boiled, probably the best action film I've ever seen. Uh, then Hard Target, which I mentioned earlier uh, in this podcast. Broken Arrow, great fun with, uh, you know, John Travolta hamming it up as the villain. Face Off with John Travolta and Nick Cage hamming it up as villains and heroes. I bloody love Face Off. Um, he then made the TV movie Blackjack starring Dolph Lundgren. Now, I haven't seen this, but someone on Twitter, um, at dpangloss, has raved about it and has been desperately trying to find me a copy, bless him. Um, so shout out to you there at D Pangloss and keep up the good work, trying to track that down. Apparently there was a moderately successful porn film, which also goes by the name of Blackjack, which he came across several times. I came across several times. <laughs> hey, um, <laughs> oh, dear. oh dear, I've lowered a tone. Um, but right, okay, so that's the run there. And then we get Mission Impossible 2. Oh, no. Um, no, uh, that was just, that was a real disappointment because I really liked the original Mission Impossible film. And then they went, oh yeah, but, uh, that film that you liked, John Woo's going to direct the next one. Whoa! Uh, no, it was terrible. Um, Wind Talkers, dull, dull as anything. Paycheck, which, um, again, I'm going to have to rewatch my Philip K. Dick thing that I'm doing. Um, based on a Philip K. Dick uh, novella, Really interesting idea. So bluntly and crudely put up on screen with Ben Affleck and Uma Thurman in the main roles. Um, he did a pilot for a Lost in Space TV show. That's when you know something's gone wrong. You know, you're John Woo and you're doing a pilot for an American TV show about Lost in Space. The original film of which was terrible. Um, then he did the Stranglehold video. He was making a video game. Uh, now, he has made... Red Cliff and Red Cliff 2, which are two epic um, stories about very important times in feudal China based on kind of true stories. Apparently, they're pretty good, but they're available for free on Netflix. And I've known about them since I've had Netflix and I've still not got round to watching them. And that sums up how, where I've gone with my relationship with John Woo. And that's what makes me so sad. Well, that's all for part two. Definitely some people who have fallen foul of us there. Um, if you agree or disagree or have your own nominations, tweet us um, or post on our Facebook page. I just actually want to say one person did tweet me last night and said uh, Kevin Smith. Um, it was at Finden Lake um, tweeted me and said, Kevin Smith, can we just pretend that after Dogma he died? 
<laughs> we're making a habit of really kind of going after Kevin Smith for some reason. But I kind of agree as well. I love the first four Kevin Smith films. And he, another one who really, really nearly made my list. So thank you at Findon Lake. That was a really good chat as well, I thought. Um, yeah, if I didn't like Clerks too, I'd probably agree. But I'm one of the minority, I think, who actually enjoyed that. <laughs> Anyway, we'll be back in part three, no spoiler alert this week, where we review J. Edgar. to the final part of this week's podcast now where we will be talking about a new dvd release this week as we haven't been to the cinema as there hasn't been a great deal on but we've reviewed j edgar now out on dvd and blu-ray starring leonardo dicaprio in the title role and directed by clint eastwood uh james you want to introduce the film for everyone yeah and i also just want to add actually on our website we said that we would be, originally we were going to be reviewing The Innkeepers or Casa de Mi Padre, the new Will Ferrell Spanish comedy. Um, but no cinema anywhere near me, uh, and I'm pretty sure near you two as well, are even showing those films. And that's another reason we've been reduced to doing a DVD release as well. It's because cinemas aren't playing ball with us. But I just, I, I'm really disappointed because I'm really looking forward well, to seeing it. Empire, Empire Cinemas didn't even reply to my tweet about a loyalty card and offer yeah. to send to let me go for free. So, I mean, what are we meant to do? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, so the film, it, it, you know, it, um, it shows the, the, the whole life pretty much of J Edgar, apart from his childhood, which I imagine was, uh, you know, pretty boring. Um, but it shows J Edgar as a young man, uh, takes him through right to the end. It's, we've got the, the narrator, uh, the potentially unreliable narrator uh, device of J. Edgar himself. Um, a lot of it is, there's some, I'll be honest, there's some fantastic period detail in here. I really like a lot of the early bits of the film, uh, the kind of 1910s onwards, uh, because, A, I really like that period of American history anyway. Uh, there's, a, yeah, there's a lot of stuff there about kind of the uh, the Bolsheviks and the communists that I didn't really know too much about. So I found that quite interesting. And I, I would say the the kind of early period detail of the film reminded me of like the untouchables. Uh, and so, and I really enjoyed that. Um, it's, it's definitely a biopic though. It's definitely about a man rather than the actions around a man. Um, I, I, yeah, I think Leonardo DiCaprio does a very good job actually. Uh, especially younger. Uh, the old man makeup later on is a little bit off-putting. Uh, but he, I still think he carries it quite believably. Um, and a lesser actor would have looked absolutely ridiculous in some of those scenes. Um, I mean, but, uh, but he puts on an accent, doesn't he, as well? It's, yeah. It's and at first I thought, what is he doing? That sounds ridiculous. But as it yeah. goes on, I think it works, actually. It's quite interesting, that aspect of his uh, performance. Because it's a little, a little bit um, when you see when you first hear him doing that, I kind of thought, well, this isn't going to be great if he's doing that through the whole film. But you <laughs> kind of stop noticing it, and it works. I think. But anyway, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I was just going to say, yeah, 
uh, coming on to the performances, uh, obviously Leonardo DiCaprio, oh, I think is excellent. I think Dame Judi Dench is is so creepy. Um, he it, she plays his mother, um, and kind of the film kind of points in her direction as being the reason that Jagger Hoover was the person that he was. You know, um, that the mother and father make the man. His his father is shown very early on to have. um and his mother is creepy um there's a scene i think it must be about halfway through where she teaches him to dance uh and she's very scared you know uh, we should be on most people would know that jagger hoover was a secret uh transvestite apparently Uh, there's evidence towards that and also you know he had a a homosexual relationship um, which he had to try and keep secret throughout most of his life. It was very difficult for him, and it, it, I think it does well to show how difficult that was for him. And also, Jane, uh, Dame Judy as the homophobic mother, who at one point says she'd rather have a, a dead son than a daffodil. Uh, she, I think her performance puts a lot of everything else into context. And she's not in it a lot, but when she is, she's very, very good. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I um I think that the the thing about him being um gay as well is that there's evidence that he was gay and he was in a relationship with a man and that he was transvestite. But there's also, you know, conjecture about maybe it's um something that was done said about him afterwards to try and discredit him. So it's kind of, the film deals with that quite well, I think, because you yeah. okay, you get the the idea and the hints that they're together, but you don't get full-on, um, you know, gay snogging or anything like that to say that they are definitely, definitely in a relationship. So I think it stays with that theme. I mean, yeah. so it's, they, they, they obviously do things which are, that aren't as subtle as, as other things in the film, like them talking about suits and, oh, mm. did you see his shoes and that kind of thing. Yeah, and also, you yeah a few of those were a little <laughs> bit clumsy, I thought, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but I think they, yeah, I, I thought they, some of it was quite subtle and it was quite yeah. quite well done. Yeah, um, but I also think um, Naomi Watts was very good. Again, not in it very often, but as the kind of the loyal assistant that against her. he for such a for someone who has been reviled in history afterwards, and uh, maybe there's an element of revisionism and stuff there. Um, it appears, and if you look into the true story of his life, you know, these are real people who did, you know, uh, Naomi Watts' character and Army Hammer, uh, who played, you know, his companion, they, they did stay loyal to him, even when he turned into a kind of paranoid, um, the, the paranoid person that he became. They did stay loyal to him. And I think the film did quite a good job of humanizing him, going, I can kind of see why they would be loyal to him. He was a very single-minded per, uh, person. And at one point, I, I wrote it down here, on 70 Minutes, I, I, I wrote halfway through, and I'm still supporting J. Edgar. Um, you know, he reminded me of Elliot Ness. About halfway through the film, I'm going, this man, what, what, what is people's problem with this man? Um, I, he's a bit weird, uh, but I can, yeah, I can... I, I quite like his single-mindedness, the way he wanted to change things, the way he wanted to add science and stuff like that. And then there's the 
the scene in Congress where he gets questioned about the Dillinger killing um, and he nearly purges himself and then he just throws an absolute wobbly. And I thought, ah, there we go. <laughs> and, kind of thing. And, and, and from that moment on, it, you see that turning point and he becomes far more paranoid and distrustful of people. Um, and all of a sudden it isn't about... Because I think the first half of the film is him wanting justice. He wants justice to be done. He wants the best possible systems in place for him to do his job. And after that, it does become about petty personal rivalry and about him wanting to be famous. So I think the film is definitely a film of two halves in that sense. And I'll be honest, I preferred the first half in terms of a period piece. Um, the second half was an interesting investigation into who J. Edgar Hoover is as a man but I can see why this film didn't get great. It, this film seemed like it was set up to be uh, an Oscar frontrunner. Would you, you know, you've got Clint Eastwood directing, Leonardo DiCaprio in the main role, and it's about American cultural touchstones. We look at the Lindbergh baby, um, JFK getting shot. They mentioned Al Capone, Nick, you know, you've got Nixon, Bobby Kennedy. It almost feels like a film that was designed to win Oscars. And obviously something went wrong because it didn't even get mentioned come Oscar time. And I, f- yeah, I find that I really interesting. Yeah, it is really interesting. I mean, just, it's, it's very, I've only seen a few films that Clint Eastwood has directed, um, Mystic River, Million Dollar Baby and Gran Torino. He has definitely got his own style, hasn't he, Clint Eastwood? Yeah. I mean, it's, you're right when you say that things seem like they're just set up to get nominations for Oscars. There were, I mean, Mystic River and Gran Torino in particular um, have... And, of course, Unforgiven. I know you're not a fan of uh, Westerns, um, but Unforgiven is a brilliant... I, I really like Unforgiven, but that even that feels like Clint Eastwood is directing a film which he which should be getting Oscars kind of thing. <laughs> like, you know, it's almost like people are talking about Oscar buzz before anyone, before filming has even started. Yeah. I mean, Million Dollar Baby is the other one, as I say, that I've seen. That one's very much got points in that film, which are supposed to be shown in a highlight reel of some kind, aren't they? Yeah. Um, (laughs) This didn't really have that kind of element to it, but it still felt the same style of direction. Things were very literal in the film. Mm. Um, Just trying to think of the way that the characters explain themselves. I think it's, it's very direct it's very um there aren't much subtleties to certain elements of the film mm. i mean the, the way that he handles the, the relationship stuff yes i think that is quite subtle but maybe that's more down to script writing the the way that they the, well as i mentioned them talking about suits and things it's it's not it's very in your face this is what i'm trying to say this is what you are watching. Whereas, you know, yeah. you get other films where if you the films that get, do get nominated for Oscars, sometimes they, they can be more subtle than that. They can be more underlying and not sort of sticking yeah. on the top of the narrative. This is very much like that, I think. And I'm um, sort of perhaps thinking now, Clint Eastwood, maybe a bit of an overrated director. I don't know. Quite possibly. Again, possibly someone who chooses his projects well, rather than... Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, that. What did you think, Steve? Um, I thought it was one of those films where a lot of the performances are good, but the film just doesn't really come together that well, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I, mean, I can totally see I feel see like that. you said, I thought Leonardo DiCaprio and Judy Dench were brilliant. I thought some of the acting was brilliant, but as a film, it just kind of... 
just yeah, he's he's a very interesting person, and I thought the film could have been a lot better. No, I yeah. I, I can see that. I, I am, I, yeah, I am quite a fan of these kind of slow burning biopic, especially kind of political drama type things. So I'm quite a fan of those. So yeah, I, yeah. I I, I I was able to. I enjoyed it. I still think it would have ended quite nicely at two hours rather than being two hours twenty or whatever it is. I think it was a bit over long, but I didn't mind the slower pace of it. Um, yeah, I was going to mention the, the length of it because I thought you know. It is a long film, but yeah. it doesn't really feel like it's a, a very long film. It kind of, the pace to it is very. It doesn't go all over the place, does it? It's yeah. very flat pace to it, and it yeah. kind of works in that as you get to sort of the ninety minutes, you then go, "Oh, it's a much longer to go." But you're not looking at it as in, "Oh, Jesus Christ, will this film yeah. ever end?" No. Um, <laughs> it's I'm good. Also... I quite like that. Too. Yeah, I think that I think there possibly could have been a bit more action in it. Just you know, there could have been a bit more. Ha- but uh, the thing is, you know, with the character of Jagger, he he did run the FBI. He wasn't a cop, so there there isn't. To, you know, most of the action is in the early years when he was far more a frontline type of investigator. Um, so I, in a way, that also makes the film feel a little bit too paced. Um, and the the first half is is much more exciting. There's a lot more going on than there is, and the second half is more about tying up who the man is. And so I felt I, I enjoyed the film. I, I I certainly enjoyed it more than I thought. I was dreading watching it. I'll be honest. When we chose this one as our our film <laughs> for the week, I was thinking, oh, that's the longest one. That's the one that everyone went is really boring. Oh God, have I got to watch this kind of thing? But maybe my low expectations helped um, because. Halfway through, I thought, actually, this is all right. I quite like this, and 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 I thought it concluded quite. Um, it, it tied it all up quite nicely, and yeah. Again, I, I've I've seen three films this week, and there were three films that I think, yeah, it's all right actually. And I think, yeah, J. Edgar, it's worth a if if this is your type of film, I think it's worth a rental. Um, yeah, I, I mean, wouldn't it's, it's necessarily say it's something that everyone should see. I, you know, I'd be lying if I said, "Oh no, no." A lot of people will get. I don't think that many people will get that much out. But if that is the type of film you enjoy, if you like the kind of slow burner political drama, uh, if you're a fan of Leonardo DiCaprio, or if you are a fan of Clint Eastwood's other work, because it is that it's very much in the Clint Eastwood style uh, of direction, I think it's at least worth a watch. Yeah. I mean, it's um, very dry, isn't it? If you if you want a political drama, mm. you know, if you enjoyed Ides of March, you perhaps won't enjoy J. Edgar because they're mm. very different types of films. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I, I enjoyed it as well. I was quite interested to see it anyway because I think he's an interesting character. There's mm. lots of, um, you know, I, I saw, I can't remember whether it was on BBC Four or, or something. I, I saw a documentary about him. I thought, yeah, okay, he's quite interesting. But you, you, your point earlier on about it focusing more on the man rather than the things that happened around him is very true to the film because there were things that I want I would have liked to have seen explored a bit more uh, or in more detail, like his files. I know they can't really... Yeah. It would just be speculation about what he kept in those files because nobody really knows what was in them. No. It's all just sort of speculation. But something a, or a bit more emphasis on those files would have been nice because it all came, kind of came towards the end of the film when they went, 
of those files, make sure that you get rid of those files. And it was yeah. like, yeah, okay, we'll get rid of those files. And then that was it, you know. If, <laughs> yeah. if there was a bit more emphasis on what was so important about those files, yeah, that would have that would have been nice. But I can understand why it wasn't in the film because it was about this. This well, it's not tragic character, but this character with his own flaws and his own mm. you know problems and stuff. So you know, fair enough. I think that it was a bit sentimental and um, rather than political. But, but you're right. If you if you into if you're into sort of biopics of political people, you you you'll probably enjoy it, Jagger. Well, I think that'll be a good place to finish for this week. James, you just want to tell everyone what's up next week and where they can find everything again. Yes, okay. So if you want to find us on the web, we're at failedcritics.com. Our Twitter is at failedcritics and our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash failed critic um now next week we much to owen's disgust probably <laughs> steve's disgust as well um we will be reviewing the latest um musical uh i think it's a jukebox musical isn't it, it you know the songs haven't been re- properly written for this yeah, kill it's, me uh, now. <laughs> yeah it's uh rock of ages starring tom cruise uh, alec baldwin russell brand and Catherine zeta jones and our um, our triple bill will be Close But No Cigar, the best Oscar-nominated films that didn't win. So these were the films that should have won, in our opinion, uh, the best Oscar picture. So that's what we've got next week. Excellent. Oh, that's all for this week then. And we'll see you same time next week. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.